thank you for joining us for another Tuesday edition of our podcast. Today we are joined by an old colleague and a current friend. He is from the great state of Arkansas, married to a former federal prosecutor, father, and oh, by father of two. And oh, by the way, also happens to be a United States senator. Uh, may well have been, I want to be careful saying this. May well have been the quickest, brightest colleague I had in the House. I remember trying to pick his brain about various issues, and I couldn't follow him. Um, He just thinks on another level. Now, whether or not that helps you in politics or not, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. His name is Tom Cotton. He's from the great state of Arkansas. Welcome, Senator. How are you? Trey, thanks for having me on. It's great to be on your podcast. Um, you know, calling me one of the brightest colleagues you had in the house, maybe damning me with faint praise. <laughs> I, I do recall back in those days in 2013, as I was a new member of Congress, um, all my buds like you and Mike Pompeo and Jim Jordan started immediately encouraging me to run for the Senate in 2014. And at first I thought it was a vote of confidence in my abilities. And then later it dawned on me that it's maybe after having a brief experience with me, you just wanted me out of your hair. We but did not I appreciate your friendship and support over the years. We did not want you out of our hair. We wanted to lower the average age of the of the United States Senate by about three decades. And we thought that you you were, what, 23 at the time? I mean, how, how old were you when you were elected to the House? Not quite 23, um, although sometimes when you're in the Congress at my age, 30. Five, I guess it was. It could feel like you're in your 20s. But yeah, so I guess I was elected when I was 35 to the House and then elected two years later at 37 uh, to the Senate. All right. I got to ask you this, and I know a lot of our listeners already know it, but I never tire of hearing your uh, biography because it is an unusual one. You grew up in Arkansas, if memory serves me correctly, did well enough to get into an elite college, then went to an elite law school and you joined the military, but you did not join the military, if I recall correctly, as a as a JAG, as a lawyer. You decided to join as just a regular infantryman. Is that right? That is right. Yeah, as a result of the 9-11 attacks, um, which I was in my last year of law school when those attacks happened. And I was I was ready to rush out and join that day. But uh, a few friends who were in the Army at the time or had been in the Army, uh, discouraged me from making that decision right away. Uh, they'd said wisely in retrospect that, you know, unfortunately the bad guys probably aren't going away anytime soon, and the Army's certainly not going away. And uh, if you drop out of law school after three years' worth of law school loans and join the Army, uh, your law school loans probably won't be going away anytime soon either. <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, they were uh, right, unfortunately, uh, most notably on the count about the bad guys not going away. But I finished um, my education and uh, worked for two years. So graduated in 2002 and then worked for two years uh, in law to pay off my loans. But after I did that, you know, I had had a couple years under my belt to, you know, get all of my, you know, personal and professional financial affairs in order, um, get mentally and physically ready for the rigors of the army. And then in late 2004, I uh, enlisted and in early 2005 shipped out to Fort Jackson in your home state of South Carolina to begin a, about a year of training before I went downrange to Iraq. And then uh, after I got back from uh, serving in Iraq as a platoon leader with the 101st Airborne, served a little more than a year in uh, 
Arlington National Cemetery as a platoon leader, performing military honors funerals, and then volunteered for a second tour in Afghanistan. Which leads me to two more questions that I wasn't going to ask you, but I am now. Um, you, you wrote a book, if I remember correctly, about the tomb of the unknown soldier. I think I am right about that. Um, or it certainly was touched upon in that book. If I'm wrong, correct me. And then I want to ask you, did you go to public school or private school in Arkansas? Because not unlike South Carolina, it is, I mean, the number of public school kids that would get into an elite Ivy League school, I mean, it's just, it's not what it would be if you went to a private school or went to some kind of boarding school. So your your schooling in Arkansas was what? And I thought you wrote a book about the guarding of the tomb of the unknown soldier but maybe i'm wrong so uh so the on the school point yeah i went to my local public schools dardanelle uh elementary middle school high school k-12 through a lot of the people i started in elementary school with i graduated with 12 years later um that was really the only option where i live you know there are places in arkansas that have private schools or um, religious schools, but in, in many communities like ours in rural Arkansas, your your only choices really would be public school or homeschooling. You know, maybe today there's a little more option for you know moving across district lines, uh, but there are not many options there. But I was very fortunate to have you know school teachers that um, were good for our community, and um, my parents you know made sure that I focused on schoolwork in addition to goofing off and playing sports and the rest, and tried hard to get good grades mostly so I didn't get grounded or get yanked out of uh, any sports. Um, and on your second point, yeah, I wrote a book, uh, probably about six years ago now called sacred duty. Um, that is about not only, uh, the honor guard, a platoon within the third infantry regiment, uh, the old guard, but the regiment as a whole. Um, so there's about a thousand soldiers stationed at Fort Meyer, which is a small slice of Robert E. Lee's old, uh, farm right behind and adjacent to, uh, Arlington national cemetery, which is the rest of the old, Custis Lee Farm, um, and those soldiers perform military honor funerals every day in the cemetery. They guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. They perform in um, major ceremonies at the Pentagon and at the White House and a few other places. Uh, they're the only large infantry force in the nation's capital. You know, there's plenty of brass and uh, other officers and senior enlisted at the Pentagon and elsewhere, but they're the only major force with significant infantry combat power. So, you know, they were always on standby as a augmentary force during State of the Unions or inaugurations or to sandbag when there's floods or so forth. Um, so it was a great honor. It's a, it's a volunteer-only unit, but I was voluntold when I was coming back from Iraq. Uh, it was a time of great stress in the force. And uh, I guess I met certain criteria. Uh, most notably, you have to be told to be there. Um, but uh, I was uh, if I couldn't be you know, downrange leading troops during core mission of the army, that was probably the second best place to be. And I found um, when I got into politics, it was one of the things that people would ask me most about. They wouldn't ask about my time in Iraq, or my time in Afghanistan. They wanted to know about uh, life at Arlington National Cemetery. And I think that's because so many people visit there when they come to Washington. It's the highlight of their trips or they've seen you know, specials about it on cable news or the Internet. Um, but there's never been a, a book about the soldiers. There's been a few books and specials about the cemetery itself and its history going back beyond Robert E. Lee and all the way to George Washington. Um, but there's never been a book about the soldiers um, who performed the mission at the cemetery. And I wanted to tell their story, which I did again about five or six years ago. Speaking of soldiers, um, there are 
things that you see that you um, wish you didn't have to see uh, and that you probably won't forget, including this week, I guess it's called the dignified transfer when you have soldiers killed in the line of duty or killed in action that uh, their remains are brought back home. And I watched that. Um, I know that I'm not looking at it the right way, but I want you to tell me how I should look at it. I see three caskets. I see dozens more soldiers injured, probably some of them gravely. And then I look for a response that is proportionate to the loss. And I don't know that I saw that. Um, Maybe the Biden administration is not through hitting targets. Maybe there's something else coming. But for most of us, not trained maybe to watch it the way you watched it. I see dead Americans and I see weapons being fired at places I can't pronounce uh, in countries I struggle to find on a, on a map, but none of whom is named Iran. Well, first, the dignified transfer remains. It's a very sad event. Um, fortunately, there are not nearly as many as there once were. Uh, the Old Guard also performs the dignified transfer remains for all soldiers who are killed overseas. Uh, and I write about this in my uh, book, Sacred Duty, as well. So when I was there in 2007 and 2008, unfortunately, in the early days, um, we did that mission almost every night, uh, given the number of dead in, in Iraq each day in 2007 at the beginning of the surge. So, you know, the, there'd be a duty roster, as there is so, for so many things in the Army, Um to include the dignified transfer remains as a junior officer, I'd be on the roster three or four times a month. Um, and when you were on the roster in those early days in 2007 through the summer, you know, you basically would just assume that you'd be going to Dover that night. You'd be flying up on Black Hawk with six other members of the old guard uh, from a casket team, along with a general officer who was the you know, kind of dignified visitor there. And um, it was, you know, tough missions always. Now, by the time I left uh, the Old Guard in 2008, that had been turned on its head. You were surprised if you had a dignified transfer of remains because the surge had been such a great success and our soldiers had done such a great job. Um, It's a very poignant, touching um, uh, event, Uh, but I'm glad that we don't have to do it so much anymore. Uh, Unfortunately, I I think what we saw last week may not be the last one, though, because um, those troops in many cases have just been made sitting ducks by 11 years of failed Obama-Biden policy towards Iran. And it really is 11 years of it. You had four-year interregnum with Donald Trump. But going back to Obama's uh, earliest days in in the White House, you have a Democratic Party that believes America is responsible for the tensions between Iran and, and the United States going back to when the Ayatollahs seized power, as opposed to the Ayatollahs who seized power and in one of their first acts held hostage over 50 Americans on sovereign U.S. territory, our embassy in Tehran, and who have been trying to kill Americans ever since, and who still to this day chant death to America and death to Israel. This is not a normal nation with normal ambitions or aspirations. Um, They want to fundamentally reorder um, the Middle East and ultimately turn America out of it, make us turn our back on friends in places like Israel or Jordan, Saudi Arabia or the UAE, and be the the regional hegemon. Um, The only way to deter them is to scare them straight. That's what you had, for instance, with Donald Trump in office. And you had it with Ronald Reagan, too. You know, in 1988, after warning Iran repeatedly not to put mines in the Persian Gulf, one of those mines struck a U.S. Navy ship 
It didn't even kill any Americans. It wounded a handful. And in response, Ronald Reagan sank half their Navy. And there's no more mining the Persian Gulf after that attack. In fact, a few months later, the eight-year-long, interminable, and vicious Iran-Iraq war ended because Iran was scared that Ronald Reagan might come in decisively against Iran. Same thing in 2020 with killing Qasem Soleimani, uh, the terrorist mastermind of Iran, uh, one of the two or three most important Iranian leaders since the revolution in 1979. Iran realized that Donald Trump was serious and it pulled in its horns. And by the time Donald Trump left office, Iran was on its knees. It was down to, I think, less than $4 billion in foreign currency reserves. But when Joe Biden took office, again, with most of the people around him, part of Barack Obama's failed uh, Iran policy, it was immediately back to business as usual. They unlocked billions of dollars um, that Donald Trump had frozen. They turned a blind eye to uh, sanctions violations almost every day, allowing Iran to enrich itself even more with black market oil sales, often going to China, our, our number one adversary in the world. And these attacks began immediately. And it wasn't just with the October 7th atrocity in Israel, um, although they've accelerated, there were almost 100 attacks against American troops before October 7th in the first nearly three years of the Biden administration. Uh, last spring, you know, I got Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to confess in a hearing at the Armed Services Committee that by that point, there'd been around 80 attacks, and we'd only responded four times. And almost every time, we just hit, hit empty warehouses or ammo supplies that are easily replaced. And, and all that does is validate Iran's strategy, which for 30 years is to build up these Arab militias or terrorist groups like Hamas or Hezbollah, um, rebels in Yemen, militias in Iraq, and then use them to attack us. And all we do is strike back. And when that happens, they're high-fiving each other because that means we're not targeting Iranians who are running around Iraq and Syria and Yemen. We're not targeting Iranian naval vessels. We're certainly not targeting anything in Iran itself. Um, all we're doing is validating their proxy strategy. And as the saying goes, they're perfectly willing to fight America to the last Arab. They don't care if Arabs die in Iraq and Syria and Yemen. What they care about is knocking America back on its heels and then ultimately driving America out of the region entirely, which would be very, very detrimental for our interests. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. So Iran's mission is pretty clear. Get us out of the region. What I struggle with, Senator, is, is and it goes, I always want to know, like, why? Why the response is so... Measured isn't even the right word. Me measured would be like more than the response. We, we are, as you say, hitting empty warehouses. We are taking great pains to maybe take a week so they can prepare themselves and move people if they need to move them. W what is the answer to the why? Why the Obama administration, the Biden administration, so reluctant to engage Iran? Well, um, some people say also they want to protect the nuclear deal. Barack Obama wanted to protect his nuclear negotiations with Iran, and Joe Biden wanted to get back into the nuclear deal. Again, I think that doesn't go deep enough to the ideological foundations of this failed Iran policy. The nuclear deal is just the, the best example of what they wanted to do now since 2008, which is you know atone for America's sins against Iran in their eyes and have America pull in its horns and therefore get Iran to be a normal nation. Uh, Barack Obama firmly believes, for instance, that we, as he often puts it, overthrew a democratically elected government in 1953 in Iran. He said it in a major campaign speech in 2008, in the 2008 campaign. 
Uh, he alluded to it in his big speech in Cairo in 2009. He's alluded to it in at least two of the books he's written. He firmly believes that. We don't have to get deep into it, but it couldn't be more wrong uh, in almost every regard. We had very little to do with what happened in 1953. Um, the prime minister of Iran was not democratically elected in any sense that we would understand it. Um, and if anything, he was the one that was trying to overthrow the customary governing uh, institutions of Iran at the time. But he firmly believes that. Many people in his party believe that. And, and they believe that, you know, by the time he took office, 40 uh, or 30 years of standing up to Iran, sinking their navy, um, you know, bombing uh, their proxies had done nothing but embolden them. When it, in reality, what had emboldened them was consistently turning the other cheek and indulging their anti-American rhetoric and actions. Uh, but that's the deep philosophical basis. Is they, they simply believe, as he often put it, if America extends an open hand, that Iran will respond in kind as opposed to with a clenched fist. Numerous other examples, if you recall, the secret love letters that he wrote to the Ayatollah as trying to open direct negotiations, for instance, the pallets of cash he sent them. That continued in the Biden administration as well. So that's the deep philosophical reason is that the Democratic Party uh, in the main believes that we have sinned against Iran. We need to make our sins right. And Iran will just, again, become a normal nation with the kind of normal disputes and rivalries that nations have with countries on their borders. Um, there's a political reason now as well, and you've seen this especially since the October 7th atrocities against Israel, it, is that a large number of Democrats aren't just anti-war. We've known that for a long time. Um, they are also anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic. And Biden has turned himself in knots, uh, on one hand, wanting to support Israel, which is clearly the right thing to do for America's interests. It's the right thing to do morally. And it's where politically the majority of Americans are, the vast majority. But he has critical parts of his coalition, young progressive voters, um, Arab American voters in places like Michigan, who are outraged by this, that, who are you know def defending um, Hamas and, and its rule in Gaza. Um, this causes a big problem for him up for re-election. And you can see this in the way he tries to split the baby by continuing to support Israel in some ways, but always having his administration leak about how terrible Benjamin Netanyahu is and how they're trying to get a ceasefire and they want a two-state solution with Hamas. Imagine how terrible that would be. Um, and um, and then you see what happens still when he goes out on the campaign trail. He constantly gets interrupted, as does Kamala Harris, by a bunch of these pro-Hamas radicals chanting about genocide or, you know, Tony Blinken's home and or suburban Virginia is constantly being protested now by pro-Hamas uh, squatters. So he's got this political calculation as well that he's struggling with, worried about his terrible poll numbers, and especially his poor standing critical swing states in the Electoral College that causes him to want to kick the can down the road, not just with the war in Gaza against Hamas, but the broader region. And he'll do anything to avoid having to engage, not just Iran itself, but all of its terrorist proxies. All that does, though, is breed more war. The surest way to avoid war is to be strong and competent and aggressive in the space of um, adversaries aggression, to nip it in the bud and make it clear that you mean business. That is the lesson of the ages throughout uh, mankind's history. It's also the lesson with Iran, if you look what Ronald Reagan did in 1988, what Donald Trump did in 2020. All right. You made reference to Biden's recent call, I guess, 
most recent but not exclusive call for a two-state solution, if the numbers are right and a majority of the Palestinian people support Hamas, why and what what is the argument? How can you possibly share a border with a state that supports an entity that did what Hamas did less than four months ago? So if the Palestinians support Hamas, why in the world is Biden so heck bent on calling for a two-state solution where Israel shares a long border with a country that full of people who desire its non-existence? Yeah, well, I think one one thing to point out is that it, it's only Democrats in America uh, and their liberal counterparts in Europe who still constantly ring the bell about a two-state solution. You know who doesn't talk about a two-state solution? It's not just Hamas, but also the Palestinian Authority, the corrupt governing authority in some parts of Judea and Samaria. They don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. They want Israel to be defeated and Jews to be pushed into the sea, as they frequently say. That's where the chant from the river to the sea comes from. The Jordan River on Israel's eastern border in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, its western edge. So they don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. And and you're right that if they were given a state, especially a normal state that had sovereignty over its borders, that had security forces and a military that had uh, totally open access in an airport and a seaport. Imagine what that kind of state would do, given what Hamas was able to do when Israel still has some degree of control over what goes into and out of Gaza, even if it didn't have any authority inside uh, of Gaza. Um, So, uh, of course, Israel can't live with a two-state solution of the kind that Joe Biden and Tony Blinken and liberal Democrats keep demanding. And, And that's not just what conservative Republicans uh, in America say, that's what people in in Israel say across the board. You might not find some fringe elements on the left in Israel that still believe in the two-state solution that was first kind of like accelerated by the Oslo Accords in the early Clinton era. But mainstream politicians and the vast majority of the Israeli people, if you believe opinion polls there, want nothing to do with the two-state solution because they know that... Um, the Arabs living in Gaza and in Judea, Samaria, under the control of the Palestinian Authority, don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. All right. Before I let you go, i got to ask you about two more quick things. Number one, James Langford was a classmate of mine. We came in together. I, I don't know that there's a more decent, uh, character-laden guy in politics, uh, but every now and again, politics gives you tasks that seem impossible. Uh, and and negotiating any kind of immigration or border deal in this political climate may qualify as impossible. My question to you, I guess, is the one that I've always had, which is why is border security negotiable? Like if your wife were to say, hey, I, I want to go here on vacation and in exchange, I'll allow you to put locks and doors on our house. I mean, you, you would say, well, wait a minute. I mean, Security is non-negotiable. We we can negotiate about something else. How in the world did it become that border security is like a bargaining chip? Well, first off, I'll say as a bridge from our previous topic, the atrocities committed against Jews in Israel on October 7th is a reminder of how dangerous borders can be. Now, we haven't had that kind of atrocity committed against Americans as a result of our wide open southern border, at least not yet. 
Um, but our border is extremely dangerous to Americans. Over 100,000 Americans are dying every year from drug overdoses. Almost all of those drugs are coming in from Mexico. Um, the There are places in Mexico that are some of the most violent places on earth, more violence, uh, more deaths per capita than places like Syria. Um, we should not tolerate um, those threats crossing our border. Um, we should not have to negotiate uh, over border security with Joe Biden. One of the president's fundamental responsibilities is to protect this country, and that starts at our own border. Now, now we've been blessed there in our history that we don't have the same kind of border disputes that were so common in, in Europe, for instance, throughout history, or they're still common in many places throughout the world. But in recent years, our, our southern border has become extremely dangerous. And Donald Trump, by and large, had it shut down by the end of his administration. That was before uh, the COVID pandemic uh, in his final year. Uh, and, you know, we were able to close it for public health reasons. So I said from the beginning of these negotiations, when President Biden himself wanted to link border security reform to aid for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, that I was open to legislation if it would solve the problem. I wasn't open to legislation just for the sake of legislation, um, certainly not to empower Joe Biden to accelerate the flow of migrants as opposed to stop them. Um, I, I have not seen anything in this legislation that would do that, though. Um, President Biden certainly has the power to reverse his own decisions, and he's shown his willingness in many other areas to stretch the bounds of the law, in his opinion, to use, as Barack Obama once said, his pen and phone. Um, yet his pen seems to be running out of ink, and he doesn't seem to have a signal on his phone when it comes to protecting our own border. So so I, I can't support the legislation that's been written. Again, I think it would, in many cases, accelerate the flow of migrants as opposed to stop the flow of migrants. And that was the main thing that we wanted to achieve with any uh, kind of legislation is, again, not, not to empower President Biden, not even to empower a future President Trump, but to use this bill to put restraints on a president who seems unwilling to defend our own border. Maybe in, in another piece of legislation, we could do that. Maybe Joe Biden will do that if this bill fails because he realizes how dangerous this border is, not just to the American people, but to his own reelection prospects. You know, as a general rule, I guess it's maybe there are exceptions, but when I hear the Washington Post and Politico and the New York Times really enthusiastic about something, it makes me suspicious as a general rule. Um, and, you know, I, I can't say politics aside because everything is politics. Everything is the ability to govern. And you have the border as the number one issue among many voters. And and there's this push for a solution that politically seems like it would only help Joe Biden in November. And 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 I guess that's the part I find vexing is why now and why in the world would we feel the need to negotiate over having like boundary integrity? It just seems like something yeah. that as a nation you're entitled to. Yeah. Um, well, it really is true that if you don't have a if you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. Now, a nation is much more than merely its borders, but that's the fundamental way you identify a nation. Um you know, my eight-year-old looks at a map and, and he knows what Israel is because he recognizes the shape of Israel. Um, if you don't have a border, you don't have a nation. Um, now, President Biden and most Democrats seem to think that not just border security, but borders simply are racist and nativist and xenophobic. 
and I guess their logic is that if you have a border and you want to enforce your border, that means not everyone who shows up at your border can enter. And if you have, if you make that choice, then you have to say, okay, who gets to enter our country and who gets to stay here? And then you have to start drawing lines and those lines make them very uncomfortable. Um, but as you say, it's just a, a, a basic a basic element of sovereignty and nationhood to have a border that you can defend. Now, I don't get into the in this debate into the politics of what it means for this election, because what what I want to do is try to secure our border and protect our country. Um, I would be willing to support legislation that forced Joe Biden's hand and actually stopped the flow of migrants by the thousands every day um, into this country. This legislation doesn't do so, though. Uh, I think the only reason why President Biden was even willing to consider it or, or make some vague rhetorical uh, motions in the direction of border security is that he is terrified about his re-election process. You see polls that show Donald Trump not just leading by four or five points in the head-to-head -head race, but leading by 30 or 40 points when it comes to issues like border security. Um, Again, if we could if we could pass legislation that would force the president's hand and force him to protect the border, I could support that uh, because I don't think this legislation will stop the flow of migrants. In addition to some of the other reservations I have, like giving billions of dollars into aid in Gaza with no real uh, guardrails to protect it from helping Hamas, uh, I can't support the legislation. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right, two more things I got to ask you before I go. When you we're in the House, and I guess maybe even the Senate, you were far and away the fastest runner. They would have this race, and that you would you would always win it. And then along comes this kid from Wisconsin named Gallagher. And I'm wondering if you ever suspected Mike Gallagher of using performance-enhancing drugs, because I, I can't think of any other way where he may possibly have eclipsed your time other than the fact he's in the House, which means he has more time to practice. And maybe performance enhancing drugs. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, Trey. But now that you mention it, I think there's a high possibility. And I'm calling for a uh, house investigation into Mike Gallagher's potential <laughs> use of PEDs in the past. The other thing he had um, after he arrived in the House and I had moved on to the Senate was, uh, as I was when I started in the House, being young and single and uh, then married but childless. So I, I had that advantage for two or three years in the house uh, since I met Anna in my time in the house. And then we got married and then she uh, had Gabriel my first year in the Senate. And I realized that my uh, my training days were going to decline rapidly once we had started, started our family, which is still the case. Isn't that funny how that happens? All right. I had a guest on not long ago and he was musing that President Trump or really whoever the GOP nominee is should go ahead and announce who would be in his or her cabinet? Just go ahead and announce right now who would be in a prospective GOP cabinet. And this guest had you down for five different slots in an administration, most of which would be constitutionally exclusive. You could not hold. He, he literally had you as the vice president, secretary of defense, CIA director, and he was Pretty sure he wanted you to be the attorney general, but he wouldn't commit to it. So <laughs> I lay aside the fact that you can't do all of that. And I know you're happy in your current job. You can tell you're happy in your current job. But do you have a dream job? Is there is there something that could get you out of the United States Senate in another form of service? I mean, we're not including things like being a shutdown ace for a major league <laughs> 
baseball team are we? Those dreams have long since been dashed. Are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right-handed, unfortunately. If you were left-handed, if you could just throw like 60 miles an hour, you would still be in the major no, league. Yeah. Um, no, I, I do. I, I love the work I do for the people of Arkansas and the Senate. I consider myself extraordinarily blessed that they've given me the opportunity to do this twice now in the Senate and once in the House. And I'm very happy to keep trucking um, with my work in the Senate for them. Um, I, I think a lot of the speculation, Trey, about who President Trump um, will pick as his vice president, who he might be in his cabinet, is it, just somewhat uh, idle conversation um, that you get in Washington, in part because the, prim- the Republican primary is going to end so soon. I mean, in my opinion, it's already over. I endorsed President Trump early. Um, I, I know that Governor Haley is still running, but uh, I just don't see a path for her to succeed in getting the delegates necessary, given the electorate that you, we have coming up in Nevada this week, South Carolina, then Michigan, and then states like mine on Super Tuesday. So you're going to have, as we've heard on occasion, the longest general election uh, in history. And typically, uh, you know, presidential, primary go, pre- presidential primaries go until at least March or April, sometimes even May or June. And that's where the focus of uh, political conversation is. But since we're moving into a general election so early and it's a repeat of the last general election, um, I think when people are talking, trying to find interesting things to talk about, sometimes um, talking about who's going to be the vice president, who's going to be in, in the cabinet, uh, may generate a little more interest and attention and clicks and links uh, than talking about the rematch for 10 months in a row. My focus, though, in addition to my my political focus, and uh, aside from my work in the Senate, is uh, first trying to make sure that we get the best candidates on the field in our Senate races so we can retake the Senate majority, and then second, helping President Trump uh, win this election against Joe Biden because heaven knows that we need to change direction in the country. I guess it's a compliment to you that, that, that they have you pegged in so many different slots, and they're all sort of interesting. CIA director is interesting. SecDef is interesting. Secretary of State has you out of the United States a lot. Maybe that's why this particular guest wanted you on a plane traveling. I don't. I think John Ratcliffe would be really good as somebody who would have to leave the country on a regular basis. I could see him there. I guess it's a compliment to you that they got you listed for so many different slots. But as you say, you are happy in the great state of Arkansas. I think you've written two books, maybe more than two. How many have you written? You've written two? So I wrote that first book that we discussed earlier, Only the Strong, about uh, the old guard of Arlington National Cemetery. Then a couple of years, um, I'm sorry, the first book is uh, Sacred Duty about our, uh, the old guard. The second book, Only the Strong, written uh, a couple of years ago um, about the history of uh, democratic failures in foreign policy, going back really to Woodrow That's Wilson right. and um, what we can do to, to protect our country and keep it safe and how to understand America's interests and what's necessary to defend America in a dangerous world. Full-time job, two children, married, traveling a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure to go on Codell's. Is there another book in your future, or 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 do you have time for that? Right, right. Increasingly, with these boys getting from you know being toddlers and newborns where they were when I was writing Sacred Duty to getting into elementary school, I find myself busier and busier running them around and playing Uber on the weekends for my children. Well, they are lucky that they have two parents who can actually help them with their homework. My kids were solely dependent upon their mom for help, particularly with math as it as they got into the third and fourth grade. But your children are lucky they can go to either mom or dad for help with their homework. 
We shall see what the future holds for you. One thing's for sure, you cannot take every job you are linked to in a new Republican administration if there is one, but it will be fascinating to see what the future holds for you. You've done so much in a short period of time already. You've got, like, there are people that don't even get to the House by the time you're they're your age and you're already in the Senate and up for re-election in 2026. Um, oh, can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, one of the smarter people that I had the pleasure of working with, ladies and gentlemen, you can probably tell that by the way he can answer questions with no reference to notes. It's all inside that noggin of his. Senator Tom Cotton of the great state of Arkansas, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Trey. Good to be on with you. All right, and thank you all for joining us for another Tuesday with Trey. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. 